This message was presented at the Amen Missions 2017 Bible Conference, Shaken But Not Forsaken, in Cape Town, South Africa. For more resources like this, visit us at www.amen-missions.co.za. Amen. Advent message to every nation. Let's get started with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to interact this morning and have worship through study. Ask, Father God, that your presence would fill this place and that you would speak through me. And that, Lord, we'd have an amazing interactive time going through um, these presentations. Uh, bless the rest of this conference, Lord. There are still three sections of it left. Um, and so continue, Lord, to just pour out your spirit. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, a few years back, I really wanted to learn how to pray better. And I realized that my prayers are really designed on what I'd other heard, just, just hearing people pray, um, which isn't bad. I had an incredibly praying grandmother, and we went to church where people really prayed. But I never really thought about having a structure to prayer, or, and not a system, but a structure, so that when I pray, I pray with a certain amount of intention. And so as I began to look at it, I found that there is a system, and it's the word praise, um, and then in the word praise, there are, it gives you the different sections of a good prayer. Now, every morning when I pray, especially when I pray with my prayer partner, um, this, is the, this is what I go through. So number one is praise. Number two is repentance. Number three is affirmations. Number, number four is intercession. Number five is supplication. And then you enter and be still. So those are the phrases. Now, what I like about this model that my pastor had introduced us to is that it's based on the sanctuary. So it, it ties in uh, two big aspects of being a Christian, an Adventist Christian. One of them is understanding prayer itself and the power, what it means to really pray. And secondly, using the truths of the sanctuary as a way to help with the structure and understanding what it means. So you all know what the sanctuary looks like. And there was an outer court, and this is where you entered in. This is where the first offerings were done, and then you went into the holy place and further on into the most holy place. This is literally like the Shekinah glory of God would come up. There was actually uh, significance to which tribes sat around which side of the sanctuary. Very, very intentional, detailed model of worship. The per what was the real purpose of the sanctuary for the children of Israel? What was the purpose of God even setting this up? so that God could dwell among them. In fact, the word tabernacle is that so that God could dwell among us. And what you find as you start to study the Bible and you start to look at prayer is that God wants to tabernacle with you. He wants to dwell among you. So much so that in the New Testament, a new word pops up, a name. And that word is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Every time you pray, you ought to pray from the perspective that God wants to tabernacle with me, that God is Emmanuel. He is with us. It changes the way you pray when you enter into prayer, understanding that God really wants to be connected to you in prayer. So the first aspect of any good prayer is praise. And I'm going to talk about why in a second. So here's what the Bible says in Psalm 100, 100 uh, verse 4. Psalm 22 and verse 3, it says, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, and into his courts with what? 
with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. But you are holy, enthroned in what? The praises of Israel. So why this is relevant is because it says that when we go to God, we are to enter in praise. Here's how deep that is. You praise him regardless of the reason you need to approach him. So it doesn't matter that there was a death in the family. It doesn't matter that you just lost your job. It doesn't matter that you're having problems at home or your child has gone astray. What matters is if I'm going to approach God, I'm going to praise God as I approach him. Because when I do that, certain things happen. One of the things that happens, of course, is by giving him thanksgiving, I am telling him before I ask anything that what? I recognize who gives all things. Right? When I praise him, I recognize that I am beneath him. I also, that also says that he is worthy of my praise. I am unworthy of approaching him, but he is worthy of my praise. And then it says, you are holy. And it says, enthroned in the praises of Israel. What happens when you praise God? You forget about things. He inhabits you. It's... It's literally how we tabernacle with God. Praise is how you tabernacle with God. Do you notice yesterday, it was very profound, and, and I should have mentioned it last night when we were having our debriefing. We went up on, onto the clearing out here, outside, and before we went out to do evangelism, we sang a song. Do you guys remember which song? I think it was We're Marching to Zion. I was way back. I was all the way back down below the stairs just listening, just observing. Let me tell you something. The campus transformed. This university campus transformed when the praises went up. I, you could feel it. You could see it. The students who could hear it responded. In fact, we, I, based on that, I decided not to do evangelism by going out into the neighborhoods. Grant and I and one other gentleman, we stayed on campus and actually began to just reach out to students on campus. And the students, most of whom were incredibly receptive. And I believe that once the praise went up, the Spirit of God came down. And we were able to do a work on the campus we wouldn't have been able to do had we not praised God. There is power in praising God no matter how terrible the circumstances. That's the first stage of any prayer. So I start my prayers, Lord, I thank you. And I just, I thank you for this. Lord, I praise you for this. I praise you because you deserve to be praised. And I stay there in my prayer for a little while, making sure I acknowledge God's greatness. The second thing is repentance. So the second phase is repentance. And this comes because when you go into the, and, and you enter into the gate and you go in, what is this here? You go in and there is a, there's a laver. Uh, well, Levi is actually back here. Here, there is actually an area where the first uh, sacrifices are made. So let's read about it. Micah 7, 18 to 19. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever. Because he delights in mercy, he will again have compassion on us. And he will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all, your, uh, you will cast all our sins. Where will he cast them? into the depths of the sea. So, when you go in, the first thing is that there is an area here for there to be a sacrifice made. 
And one of the reasons when you think about the sanctuary message is that it is a constant, the whole way through, it is a reminder of the price of sin. So when you go in, imagine you have to take, now imagine you, you need sacrifice for your sin. You got to take one of your best lambs, one of your best animals, without spot, without blemish, and it is a bloody and gory process to sacrifice that animal as you come in. Every time you think to sin, you think, ooh, how high a price it is every time I sin. And you know what messes us up sometimes and why Ellen White talks about our need to constantly uh, focus on the cross, to constantly study it? She says it should be our, the theme of our studies because if we constantly think about the price Christ paid for our sins, we view sin differently. It's not as easy to sin when you think about that every time we sin, we crucify Christ afresh. And it was a gory, bloody, terrible death that Christ suffered. So one of the reasons you repent, one of the reasons you do this is you want to be reminded of the high price of sin. But, but then Micah really tells us, listen, God is a God who pardons us. He forgives us. And then he takes our sin and he casts it into the depths of the sea. And I mentioned this earlier in the week. When the, the man has been to the moon, man has never been to the bottom of the ocean. The deepest points of the ocean man has never visited. And I believe that's uh, at least allegorical to tell you that when God does away with your sin, it's gone. Nobody can go back and get it. And in fact, the, often the main person trying to go back and get our sins, revisit our sins, or feel guilty about our sins is who? It's actually us. But God forget, you know, let me tell you something. That's something that will liberate you. Amen. When you, remember, as we just heard in the devotional this morning about Jacob, when, God, when you ask God to forgive you of your sins, you don't need to struggle with God about them anymore. In fact, there are those who argue that if you stay there and struggle with your sin, you invite in the enemy into your life because you're saying you don't trust the blood of Jesus. And if you're not trusting the blood of Jesus, by default, you're giving power to the enemy. So, Repentance is one of the major and most important things. You go into the holy place and you find the table of showbread, the altar of incense, uh, the menorah lampstand, and of course there's the veil with the angels on it. The, 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 the um, smoke from the incense is the only thing that would go up and over the veil into the most holy place all year until the day of atonement when the priest would actually go into the most holy place. Do you remember what they'd have to do to the priest when he would go into the most holy place? They'd have to, t let me tell you something, I don't know that I want that job. <laughs> That's a tough job. Imagine your job is to go into the most holy place, and every year before you go in, they say, listen, hold on, uh, just in case. <laughs> Let's tie a little rope around you, because we can't, it's so holy in there, we can't go in after you. But we're just going to have to pull you back out. Again, speaking to the high, see how it tells you how, how sinful sin really is, how terrible sin is, even that does. So the next step, so praise is the step number one. You enter into the courts of praise. Every time you pray, you praise God first. The second thing you do is you ask God for repentance. Why? Before you go any further closer to God, you, wanna, you want your sins removed from you. You want to stand before God having repented your sins. And why? It's not just that you want your sins washed away, even though that is incredibly important. You want to be honest with God. God already knows what you did. 
He already knows where you failed. He even knows where your, your weaknesses are in your character. By repenting to God and being honest with God, you develop a relationship of trust with God. And you know what happens to a lot of us? Literally, we have secret sin that we think we can hide from God. And you, you can't hide the sin from God. And the problem with hiding sin from God is like hiding a, a symptom from a doctor. Right? A lot of people go, I'm a doctor. People come to me and they have a terrible problem and they don't want to tell me because what do they not want me to tell them? They're scared I'm going to tell them they got cancer or they got some terrible illness or some weird thing. So a lot, they'll come to you and literally not say something. And usually it's men. And usually the man doesn't want to tell me what's wrong. And guess who tells me? His wife. <laughs> tell him, tell him. <laughs> you know? And then and the guy's like, oh, well, you know, sometimes when I do this, you know, that happens. Or when I, you know, I'm, I'm coughing and when I cough, sometimes there's blood tinge sputum. Whoa, that, yeah, that's important. You ought to tell me that. But watch this. When you repent, it's not simply so that, it's not so that God knows what you did wrong. He already knows. He was there. He knows everything. It's so that you recognize your inability and your failures. And what you're saying when you repent is, Lord, I trust you to help me deal with it. Amen. And that relationship, that's why the Bible says a just man falls seven times and rises seven times. There's something about even every time you fall saying, Lord, I trust you to not destroy me, to not condemn me. John, um, Grant just talked about his favorite verse, uh, John 3, 16. I like 3.16 and 17. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but what? Have everlasting life. 17 is deep. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might what? Be saved. So many Christians think really the experience with God is one of condemnation. In fact, one of the biggest problems the church has is we're often looking to condemn each other. The reason I, I, I listen, I give people all the benefit of the doubt, and, and the Spirit of Prophecy says, if we're ever going to make a mistake, if we're going to err, we should err on the side of mercy. We should not err on the side of judgment because we aren't capable of judging like God does. God sees about people what we can't see. So, in our, in our, as we go through and, and as we repent, we are building a trust relationship with God. And I, I like to always follow this all the way through. You build trust with God, trust builds faith. Faith is what justifies you. Without faith, the Bible said, it is what? Impossible to please God. If you don't trust God with your failures, you won't trust God with your victories. You've got to trust him with your sin and exposing yourself, opening yourself up to him so that you can gain victory over your sin. So that's repentance. Affirmations is the next thing. And I like this phase. I like this part of the prayer. It was one of the things that was new to me when I studied the sanctuary message uh, and prayer uh, together. And this is the table of showbread, right? Um, and, and, well, let me go back one. What does the, what does the, bread, what does the bread represent? A couple things. One of them is God's word, right? The bread represents God's word. Um, and it is, it is by consuming that word, that bread every day, that we are sustained. But Jesus is also the bread of life. In the sanctuary, most things also point back to Jesus. The lamb, when you first walk in, 
points back to Jesus. All the way through, it points back to Jesus. In repentance, I skipped the step, but in repentance, you wash your hands in the golden laver before you go in. It's like a, a, almost like a mini baptism. You wash before you can go into the holy place. The priest would have to wash. So before you get inside the temple to start, inside the um, holy place to start asking for anything, you've sacrificed, you've praised, you sacrificed, you washed, then you go in. And your prayer is the same way. You praise, you sacrifice by telling God what's going on. You wash by asking for repentance, by washing in the blood of the lamb, and then you go inside. And when you get inside, you meet the table of showbread. And why is that relevant? It says, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the bread of life. Now, so let's discuss digestion for a second. What happens when you eat something? What is the whole purpose of eating things? She said to be full. She said nutrients. I like her answer better because that's probably how I eat. But um, what she said is actually right. You eat to get nutrients. So if you eat a piece of whole grain Ezekiel, do you guys have Ezekiel 4-9 bread here? Okay, so some, I think it's Adventist in California uh, invented a brand, a type of bread called Ezekiel 4-9. If you read Ezekiel 4-9, what you get is the actual ingredients of of, um, of um, sprouted grains that you should make bread. It is it's a tougher bread, it's a thicker bread, but it's a healthier bread. So let's talk through what happened, because this is important if you don't understand affirmations. You take the bread, you take your food in the morning, you put some peanut butter on it, maybe you put some fruit on top, and you eat it. When it gets into your mouth, the first thing you have to do, you have to chew it. Mastication. You have to chew the, chew the food, your body then releases saliva, right, which has enzymes in your mouth to begin the process of, watch this, breaking the food down. And you can't digest it in its whole form. And then it passes down your esophagus where really no digestion should happen. But if you eat unhealthy food, don't miss this, and simplified sugars that are not substantive, like Snickers bars and Twinkies, y'all have those here? Oh, shame, 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 right? Or a donut. The simple sugar begins to, watch it, it gets absorbed in your esophagus. Your body starts to absorb the sugar right away. That's not the way you're, you're supposed to work, though. Because you really want the sugar being digested and absorbed in your small intestine. Way deeper down, so it's a smoother release of energy. Smoother release of sugar that gives your brain, your brain only functions on one energy source, and that's simple glucose, simple sugar. So if you, if you get the rush of sugar too fast, your brain is overloaded. You get a sugar high and a sugar crash. That's what happens. But if you eat whole grain bread, the sugar is released, or brown rice, or quinoa, these, these whole grains, slow, nice release of sugar all day or for hours that keeps your brain in a steady state so that you have better ability to focus. I'm off the subject a little bit, but this is part of the reason why children are diagnosed with ADD and ADHD, all these attention deficit disorders, when in fact, what is happening is they're overstimulated by television, and then their diet is too simple, uh, is get, they're getting too many processed, refined sugars in their diet. And so they're, they're not being able to steady state. So how does that relate back to this? Your body has to break down God's word. Your spirit has to break down God's word. You've gotta be able to incorporate God's word into your life the same way you have to incorporate the nutrients from the bread into your body. So when you take the iron out of the wheat, and that iron molecule goes into your blood, that iron molecule then passes through your liver. 
The iron molecule then passes around. Your, your body packages it in such a way that it can go into your bone marrow, and when your body needs to make a red blood cell, the hemoglobin is made because iron was consumed in the bread. Some of us, you, we're, our spiritual diet is such that it's too sugary. So we get this emotional high when we go to church, if, you know, for those who go to church, we get this emotional high sometimes, but it's too quick up and down. During the week, we're not studying God's word. We don't have that slow, steady release of energy from the word of God because during the week, we ignore God's word. In fact, many of us are on a starvation spiritual diet and we come to church to try and binge to catch up for what we didn't consume spiritually all week. The affirmations are placed in your prayer because the affirmations are a product of what you've consumed in your Bible study, in your devotional time. You're putting back into your prayer, like, like your body puts the iron into the hemoglobin into your red blood cell, you're putting into your prayer now the components of your study. So what you're studying is strengthening how you talk to God. And now you're not spiritually anemic because the word of God is filtering into every aspect of your spiritual life. So affirmations are important. And Jesus is that bread. Affirmations, the table show, but your words were found and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. The Bible says you ought to eat his word. We should be on a steady diet of God's word. And I challenge people all the time. In your office, you know, if you have, you have cubicles, they told me in South Africa, they call them cubicles like we do in the States. Have little words of affirmation, little Bible verses that you put up. At Barrel's house, I like that they have little, little Bible verses in little places I've noticed all over the place. And just as a reminder, I have them in my house, little, you know, little cards you get. Let it be that, so that even when it's not intentional, you're getting hit by the word of God. I'm telling you, the word of God will transform. And there's times when trial is coming and what you need is a word. And sometimes that little thing you got sitting on your desk is a word. 2 Timothy 1.7 is one of my favorite. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And guess what? Many times when I pray, that's my affirmation. So while I'm praying, I go through praise. Right? I go through repentance. I get to affirmation. So before I'm asking God for anything, I say, Lord, you said in your word that you would never leave me nor forsake me. Lord, you said in your word, you said it, Lord, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You said in your word that I ought not be afraid, that I ought not be dismayed. You said all of these things, Lord. I am trusting your word, Lord. You ought to be in dialogue with God like that when you pray. And so you can't have a dialogue if you don't have God's word. Because God's word is him speaking to you. So that's the fourth one. Praise, repentance, affirmations. And then the one, two, three. Fourth one is intercession. <sighs> Before you pray for yourself, you should be praying for others. That's why this is before supplication. Intercession. So how many of you have folk that you regularly pray for? Good. So actually, there's a lot of ways to do this. So let me, let me, let me add something into this that I probably should have said at first. 
One of the things I do have, and I, 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 I have a kindred spirit with Beryl because she's, she's mentioned that she does, I think she's a whole lot better at this than I am though, and that is I have a prayer journal. And I learned to have a prayer journal when I was at Oakwood University at the Adventist school there. And they told us, Doctor, I'll never forget the sermon, E.C. Ward, one of the greatest preachers of the word ever, oh, I'll say of the modern era, let me say it that way. He had a sermon and he talked about how God answers prayer. And one of the things he mentions is that you should keep a prayer journal. And by keeping a prayer journal, what happens is a month later, a year later, six years later, you go back and look at your prayer journal and you will find that he has never not answered a prayer. Even when you thought he didn't answer it, you, get, you give it enough time and you look back and say, well, actually, that was the wrong person for me. I was begging him to give me. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? You go back later and you're like, I, actually, he did answer it. I, that would have been the worst job I could have ever gotten had he given me what I, what I wanted. So you keep a, a prayer journal so that you can see that. But here's where it gets even deeper, and this is something I need to do myself. Some of the folk you're praying for, they should be listed in your prayer journal. You should keep a list, and there are folk who have a list, and, they, and, I, and I have people come up to me all the time, Dr. Walsh, how's everything? I'll say, well, and I'll say, say good, because I'm, I'm trying to get you checked off of my prayer list. <laughs> Say, I'm hoping everything's back to normal. I say, wait a minute, hold on. Don't you check me off your prayer list. <laughs> you leave me on that prayer list till Jesus comes. I want to be on the prayer list. I want to know folk are praying for me every day. So I want to be praying for other people. And that's what intercession is all about. It is praying for other people. And this is represented by um, the incense that rises up. The smoke of the incense that rises up is what, is what it's represented as. So intercession, the Greek word for intercessions is entiexus. It is a technical term for approaching a king, to meet and converse with him by bringing a petition before him, watch this, to plead on someone else's behalf. Intercession is to go before the king and say, listen, king, this isn't really fair, but my neighbor needs help. You understand what I'm saying? You intercede for your neighbor by stepping in front of the king and, and, and interceding on someone, else, on someone else's behalf. Intercession, as we are pressing more closely to his presence, this portion of prayer represents acting as a spokesman or woman for others in a hearing with the king of kings. Why is that relevant? I've learned um, through you know, dealing with things that are around spiritual warfare that sometimes people don't know enough to pray for themselves. Sometimes folk get caught up in drugs, bad relationships. They can get caught up in fame and fortune, and they don't know enough to pray for themselves. If you go back to the story of Job, the way I understand it, if you go back to the story of Job, the devil then can say, listen, Lord, you can't work on this person's behalf. They've not asked for your help. You have no permission to intercede in this person's life. They are carrying out their own free will. Leave them alone. But here's what happens. If I, on the other side of the world, call on the name of the Lord and I lift that person up in prayer, I say, Father God, I am asking right now that you intercede on Brother X's behalf. I know that he is struggling with this, this, and this, or he needs to make a decision about this. I am asking, Father God, that you would go in and work on that person's behalf. Now when the enemy comes and says, this person has not asked for your help, God can say, no, but one of my faithful servants has interceded on his behalf. 
and I now have permission to work for that individual. I'm saying it in a way that's very black and white, but you get my point. When you pray for your relative that has not accepted Jesus Christ, who wants nothing to do, that maybe is an atheist, you give God space to work. That's why when you pray, you've got to have folk that you lift up. I've got relatives that I lift up. Some, I have one in prison that I lift up. I have some on drugs that I lift up. And I lift them up, and I lift them up, and I lift them up, and I lifted up my brother for years, and my brother came back into the church under his own volition. He was working and doing stuff in the nightclubs in Miami, making a lot of money, meeting all of the rappers. You know, he, he, was, he knew all of the athletes, all of the pro athletes. He was, he was in a fast world, making good money, nice stuff, chunk jewelry, you know, all the stuff everybody on the street and in the hood wants. And when my mother died, he didn't come right back to church. That was her plea to him to come home to God before, you know, as she was dying. He had two big diamond stud earrings that he wore. And she said, just, uh, just don't wear them to my funeral. I mean, that was one of the last things she told him. And when I saw him after, he was still wearing it. But I didn't, again, no judgment. Just prayer. Just mention the word of God. Prayer. Mention the word of God. And eventually, my brother on his own, I'm on the other side of the country, began to listen to audio verse. He said he listened to all of my sermons. And my own brother went and listened to my sermons. And then he called me and said, why are you talking about me so much in your sermons? <laughs> I said, because you make a good point. <laughs> and that young man is now in his church. He is involved. He's in law enforcement now. He is trained to be a teacher. But I'm t I, prayer. You've got to intercede on behalf of the folk you're concerned with. If you don't intercede on them, you, you, it's like you're saying, God, you have no chance to work for this person. If you're married, you definitely got to be praying for the other person. I mean, that's a, that's a given. If you're a parent, you definitely got to be praying for your children. But even outside of your nuclear family, your extended family, have you, how many times have you prayed for people you don't even know well, like the person two or three, I don't know if it's like that in South Africa, but in America, they don't know your neighbors anymore, most neighborhoods. You know, everybody just pulls into their driveway, the door shuts, down the garage, we go into our garage, it shuts, we go upstairs. But do you pray for the people down the street? Do you do prayer walks? I know, you know, and it sounds crazy, that means we don't like doing it, but there's nothing wrong with walking through the neighborhood and looking at the house and saying, Father God, I ask blessing on that house. I ask, Lord, that you would bring them into a knowledge of Jesus Christ. In fact, sometimes we want to work with folk because we, we want to get in their face. We want to talk to them. We want to convince them of stuff. I challenge you to take time first just to pray for them before you even approach them. Prime the engine with intercessory prayer for the folk. So when you're going to do a church, is going to do a crusade. A lot of times first we're, we're strategizing how we're going to talk to the people, how we're going to get them into the church. Sometimes it's better you take a few weeks and just walk the neighborhood and pray with folk. And as you meet folk, as you randomly meet folks, say, is there anything you want to do? We just want to pray for you. We don't, we're not asking for anything. You don't have to come to a program. You don't have to show up to anything. We're just praying for you. If you need something, let us know. We can bring you back groceries. We can do stuff. But just let us know. We just want you to know we are praying for you. And a whole lot of folk will want to listen to everything else you got to say when they know, wow, this person has a vested interest in my well-being. The altar of incense, let my prayer be set before you as incense. The lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. 
Let my prayer be set before you as incense. That incense was what would carry up over the top of that curtain that could only be uh, breached once a year. So that the prayer, like the, in other words, allegorically, the prayer still reached to the mercy seat. When even when the high priest couldn't go in. As Isaiah 62, 6 and 7 says, I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord do not keep silent and give him no rest till he establishes uh, until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. You, my friends, are the watchmen. When we pray, we pray like watchmen pray. What is the job of the watchman? The watchman is to sit up on the wall, and as they see trouble coming to the city, they cry out that trouble's coming. We are to pray as watchmen so that folk are warned of the trouble that is coming upon the earth. So, number one is praise. You enter into his courts with praise. Every time you say a prayer, you start out by thanking God, by talking to God, by, 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 by telling him how much you love him, by telling him how worthy he is. The second thing you do is you repent. You ask God to forgive you of your sins, not just of your sins, but of your iniquities. You are open with God about your secret sin. And I remember hearing at Oakwood, one of the things they said is, even the stuff you like doing, you still need to give to God. You got a secret sin you really like. You need to make sure God, you tell God about it and tell him you even like doing it. He already knows. But then tell him you want a change. And by bringing the sin to him, you can do that. Affirmations. We talked about the word of God, the Bible promises. So I like Bible promises. I, I put Bible promises all over the place. And if you Google Bible promises, there are whole different types of, of, of lists of Bible promises that can come up. Intercession for someone else. And then here, look how far down into the prayer process it is before you start asking for God to do anything for you. Supplication. And that is the menorah. The light from this represents Jesus Christ. Supplication is defined to make an entreaty, a cry from the heart, and stresses a sense of what? Have you ever been in a place where you lay down on your and you just agonize with God? I did that when my mother was, I've done that many times. I've had many circumstances. When my mother died, when my cousin Sean Taylor, the famous football player in the United States, was shot and killed. When I went through my own stuff over these last few years, I would just lay out on my face and cry out to God. And tears come. And as you get deeper into it, you really connect with God and you're just agonizing with him. And, he, and, and what happens to me is, as I'm asking God for things, I begin to realize how unworthy I am of any good thing from God. So usually I start asking for stuff and end by just declaring, Lord, I'm unworthy. I'm asking for this, but I'm unworthy. So supplication is to make an entreaty, a cry from the heart, and stresses a sense of need. The Bible says in Philippians 4 and verse 6, be anxious for what? Nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. This is telling you that prayer and supplication are not the same thing. Supplication is to cry from the heart. It is a deep, resonating uh, call to God. It's not just a prayer where you say, like you say, your grace over your food, that's a prayer. That's not supplication. It's a difference. Be anxious for nothing, because you have this ability to, to go before God in supplication. You don't have to be worried about it. His desires become your desires. If you remain in me, 
and my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As we pray, as we draw close to God, our prayers, let me tell you, your prayers become more effective as you draw closer to God. And let me tell you why. Because you begin to pray for what God wants for you instead of praying for what you want for yourself. So your prayers become far more effective. That's one of the reasons why when my grandmother would pray, it was like heaven would move for her. Once, um, I'm talking about prayer, when my, my grandfather was um, uh, dying, he had had a, actually he had a massive heart attack and then a stroke on top of it. My grandfather was a reprobate. This is a classic British Jamaican. Like, he's from that old era. You know, he smoked a pipe. Um, he drank rum. Um, he, he was cl classic. <laughs> I won't even get into it. In fact, he was so bad, my grandfather would line us up and make us and pass the pipe, little kids, and pass the pipe to us. Now, I had enough sense not to breathe it in because my mother would kill me, but, but he would do stuff like that. And, you know, he would, you know, he would drink. He, 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 I mean, he, he had a lot of issues, honestly. But my grandmother was a Christian woman, a Seventh-day Adventist. And not only was she Seventh-day Adventist, her mother was Seventh-day Adventist. They had been brought into the church many, many moons earlier. They say in the early 1900s in Jamaica when first missionaries went to Jamaica. And um, she stayed with him, one, even though he did all kind of terrible things. But two, she stayed faithful to God. Somebody asked me at this conference, well, what do you do if you're in a situation where you're trying to keep the Sabbath, but your parents, um, you know, want you to do something else? I said, you mean like wash a car? I said, well, you obey your parents. You tell your parent, look, listen, I don't want to do this on the Sabbath. You ask them if you can have an out, but you say, I'm going to obey you, but it's still my Sabbath. My grandmother would do stuff like cook for him when he came home late on a Friday night. She didn't, she wanted to be keeping her Sabbath, but she would have to start from scratch and do stuff for him because she was trying to be a faithful wife. Terrible conflict, I mean, obviously, and I don't know that I have the right answer. But I can tell you that all those years later, when he had that heart attack and that stroke, we flew in from Connecticut, which is up north in the U.S., down to Miami, and all of us, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, everybody was in a room. My grandmother made us all kneel down. And from the smallest one who could barely say a word, all the way up to her in age, Everyone had to pray for my grandfather. We never got to her. By the time the phone, we would have gotten to her, the phone rang, and the hospital called and said, we don't know what happened. But we thought he would not make it, because that's why we flew to Florida. We thought he was going to die. He's going to be fine. The doctors could not explain what happened. We went back to the hospital, and there he was, sitting up, joking, and carrying on like his normal self. Prayer, supplication intercession. That man who ridiculed my grandmother's religion all those years, that man who when he would pull up to pick her up in his big long Cadillac would be on purpose be playing Michael Jackson beat it, just a frustrator, that man was baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist church and died a devoted Seventh-day Adventist seven years later. There's power, power in prayer. And the reason, like I was saying, that my grandmother's prayers seemed to be answered the way that they were is because when she prayed, it, to me, it's almost as if she could pray inside God's will. I can't explain it. And God would move mountains on her behalf. 
So the last stage of this is to enter and be still. Enter and be still. Psalms 46 and verse 10 says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. Blessed are they that dwell in thy house. They will be still praising thee. So you're supposed to spend some time dwelling with God. So what a lot of us do when we finish praying is we jump up, you know, get ready for breakfast or throw on our clothes to go to work and we run out of the house. You aren't really praying if you don't give God time to communicate back to you. Now, I'm not saying you're going to hear God speak literally to you every morning, but it gives God a chance, it gives you a chance to just in the quietness of your, of your prayer time to listen for God's impression on your life, for, to listen to what God is trying to do with you in your life. And the reason a lot of us can't hear God's voice now is because we have too much noise, too much television, internet, we're always checking our phone, Facebook, Instagram, you know, text messages. Sometimes you got to put all of that away and allow God to speak. So then this happens in the most holy place. So we walked all the way through the sanctuary. Be still and know that I am God is in the most holy place. The only piece of furniture within the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant, an incredible, incredible structure. This was the most sacred of all sanctuary objects. To demonstrate its preeminence, the Ark was the first article God commanded Moses to make. The Ark of the Covenant was the throne of God on earth. This sacred chest contained the two tables of stone which God wrote his Ten Commandments with his own finger. Right? It also contained, as a memorial for God's supernatural provision, a golden pot of manna was placed inside the Ark. And a third thing, the Ark also contained Aaron's rod that budded, a sign given to verify Aaron had the right to serve as high priest. So there's three things inside. When we pray, when we're sitting in quietness, there's three things that you can contemplate. Three things that you can allow God to impress upon you. One, his law doesn't change. And the law, you know what I've learned? As I, the more I study God's law as a Seventh-day Adventist, the more I realize the law is a powerful tool. There are a lot of people who just say law's done away with. There are folk now who are adding to the law and saying you got to keep feasts. The Ten Commandments, when you hold them up to yourself, make an incredible mirror and shows you the things in your life and in your character that need to be changed. That's the, one of the most powerful roles of the Ten Commandments. It's there because in your quiet time, you can reflect on who you are in God. But the second thing is the manna. It's the pot of what? The word that we use there is provision. When we contemplate, remember when I talk about stress equals demands minus resources, the pot of manna says that God always has resources. I don't need to get up for my prayer worrying because the pot of manna says that when the children of Israel needed food and they could not find food in the wilderness desert that they were in, God caused food to rain from heaven. The manna also represents God's word, like the bread again. But it, I like to think of it in this, in this particular instance as God reminding you he has everything you need. But the budding rod is also interesting, isn't it? It speaks to the fact that Aaron was, it was to remind them that this sign that was given there was to remind them that Aaron was, the high, was, the high, was to be chosen as priest. For us, it reminds us that Christ is our high priest. And what, it what that tells me is I've got a shot at salvation because I've got a high priest who knows what it's like to be tempted. I've got a high priest who knows how difficult life is. 
I've got a high priest who knows that human flesh is genetically flawed, that I am predisposed to sin. I've got a high priest that when he goes before the Father on my behalf, he's not just the high priest, he's also the lamb. The rod represented Christ, our branch, who was dead and resurrected with new life to serve as our only high priest in heaven. The ark was covered by the mercy seat, which had two cherubim, one at each of opposite ends. There are the two cherubim covering uh, the ark. It was there that the visible presence, the Shekinah glory of God, filled the space between the cherubim. Here God commanded with, communed with people and heard their prayers. In between the angels, the Shekinah glory of God sat. That's how holy that process was. And I want you to get this from the sanctuary system of prayer. As you go through it, and as you sit and you contemplate in silence at the end of the prayer, the Shekinah glory of God still sits between the angels. There is still a mercy seat. There's still an advocate on your behalf. And you got to remember that because the devil will tell you you've done too much wrong. Your sin is too thick. Your past is too terrible. God can't possibly love you. He can't possibly save you. He can't possibly want you. But everything about the sanctuary says God went through an incredible process to make sure you had access to the throne. Hebrews 4.14 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our what? Our profession. Our profession of what? Our profession of faith. People always ask me, what's your profession? I'm a physician, but my real profession is my profession of faith. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. I like 16. 16 says, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why this sanctuary message? Why the sanctuary applied to prayer? Because it directs you all the way to the throne. <coughs> and when you get to the throne, it's the throne of grace. And what do we get there? Mercy. And we find grace to help in time of need. That is a very potent passage of scripture. One of the ones, if you want to put one up in your cubicle, that's a good one. And here's why. It speaks to the throne being of grace. What does grace mean? Unmerited favor. You should have said it. Right? Grace means you get something you didn't earn. That's what grace means. Grace says, that's why, it, that's why the songster says, it is amazing grace. Because I could never earn what God is going to give me. So grace says that. The throne itself is a throne of grace. Which means the way you see God should be different. Because many people think God's throne is a throne of destruction and of judgment. The throne is a throne of grace. He wants to give you what you didn't earn. But then it's not just that. You go to the throne of grace, and guess what the first thing he gives you? Mercy. What is mercy? Because a lot of people don't know the difference between grace and mercy. 
Mercy says you're not going to get what you did deserve. Grace gives you what you didn't deserve. Mercy keeps you from getting what you did deserve. So mercy says although you sin and the wages of sin is death and you should die the, not just the first death, you should die the second death. The lake of fire should be your final resting place. Mercy says nope. Nope, 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 nope. Mercy says Jesus on the cross paid that price. And mercy says Eric Walsh does not get what he deserves. Eric Walsh gets what Christ deserves. And find grace to help in time of need. In time of need. In time of need. Sometimes you forget. The whole process allows you to connect with God so that when the whole world is falling apart, you follow back through your prayer, you follow the pattern, and you get back to the throne of grace, and in time of need, God answers you. That's that talk. I don't know what time it is. Does anybody know the time? Okay. In about 10 minutes? Okay. Any questions on this one before we switch over to the other one? The other one's a lot more complex than this one, in my opinion. And you guys, if you need to go use the, use the restroom and come back, that's fine. We'll, go ahead. I think you can do it any way you want to do it, honestly. I think what's most important, you have the components. But I do think there's something about the sequential process, just as there was something about the sequential process of when you can't, if that priest was to come to go, go through the whole process, the high priest was to start at the beginning and go all the way through, each step added something for the next step. Praise in the beginning says, I'm recognizing you as God. Everything else I'm about to do is based on the fact that you are God. So before I ask you for something, I'm going to recognize you're the one who gives everything. I'm praising you. Your repentance stage is so that you are dealing with sin before you approach a holy God. Right? And then the supplication is, before I ask for anything, I'm going to claim your promises. Right? So it, it all builds. And then I'm not going to ask for anything for myself first. I'm going to ask for something for someone else first. So I'm going to intercede on someone else's behalf. Then I'm going to supplicate because, Lord, I am in need. And the last phase really is just stay there. Just relax in the most holy place of your prayer and, co and consider God's goodness, his mercy, his grace, all of the things that are represented in the most holy place. So you can, of course you can pull apart, you know, and say, listen, to, I, you know, I'm gonna spend the next 20 minutes and I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna pray for the people on my prayer list, right? Or I'm, I'm just gonna spend this next half hour just dealing with God around my sin and asking for repentance. Of course you can do that. But I just think sometimes when you're looking, you know, you really are trying to find, because some people, the problem is, they say, I don't, I don't have a, a way to pray. And so this is just one way. There are probably a million other models or many other models. I like this model because it just, it reminds me of, the, of what it took to get to the, you know, what they had to go through in order to, they had to deal, it was all one process in dealing with sin, asking for mercy and grace. It was all one process that really reminds us of how intentional God is in saving us. So I like the process because I like the fact that it reminds me of so many things. And every time I, when I pray in the morning, that's, this is the model I use. Now, during the day, you're right. I mean, if I have a patient and, you know, they're you know, dying on the table, I'm not going to be like, okay, well, let me, let me go through the steps. You know, <laughs> I'm like, save him, Lord. 
Um, so you understand what I'm saying? So it's just a model that you can use to help you pray. Oh, yes. No, that's very true. And, that, and, that, and, that, and again, that can totally happen. I mean, you, you know, you get a call that someone in your family has passed away. I mean, you're going you know, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna to deal with that issue. I'm saying in your normal morning pattern, this is a nice pattern of prayer to follow so that you really are intentional about your prayer. You're not, you know, it makes you less clumsy about it. Some people don't like being clumsy about their prayers. This isn't necessary for you to do in front of the church, even though obviously this works if you do it in front of the church. You know, if you have a call to do the pastoral prayer one Sabbath, this is a nice way to make sure you go through kind of all of the steps and stages of a prayer to make sure you do a very well-rounded, complete prayer. But I, I don't say that you have to do this. I mean, it's just, I like this, this model. It, it helped my prayer life. Because one of the things, you know what it really helped me do? It was the first one. I don't think I was praising God enough when I prayed. And I definitely was not calling on Bible promises in my prayer before this. At least not intentionally. I, I, I mean, I would, but this now, I, you know, I, you have to, and what it does, it makes you have to go find Bible promises. Sometimes, you know, before you're like, okay, I need a good Bible promise to in, interject into my prayer today. And so you go and find Bible promises. So, This message was presented at the Amen Missions 2017 Bible Conference, Shaken But Not Forsaken, in Cape Town, South Africa. Amen Missions, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, is a youth-led ministry seeking to inspire young people to be Bible-based, mission-focused, and Christ-centered Christians. Our aim is to assist in taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the world in this generation, starting in South Africa. For more resources like this, or to find out how to support this work, visit us at www.amen-missions.co.za. Amen. Advent message to every nation. This recording was produced by the Preparation Ministry.